You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with PJ Murray, who's using Rails and React to build a service that makes it easy for teams to perform customer research. PJ, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Uh, happy to be here. Happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your service? Sure thing. So PJ Murray, um, I'm here located in Australia, born in, born in New Zealand, though, proudly. Uh, and I'm the CTO of Great Question. And what Great Question is, is it's a tool to help teams to run better user research and, and automate their user research processes. So whether it's uh, conducting a customer interview, sending out a survey, or running a prototype test, we make it super easy for people to recruit candidates, uh, run the actual research, and then collate their learnings and share it with their team. Nice. So is this a type of service where if I wanted to run like an interview on my site, I can just embed some JavaScript that you give me onto my site, and then that's kind of how it works or no? Yeah, so we're not yet doing embedded stuff. We will do that. But primarily what it would look like is you'd have a list of customers or potential customers that you want to talk to, and you would bring them into our system. And then when you would use Great Question to filter that, that list to decide who you want to talk to for interviews, send out uh, send out booking pages for them to book time with you and configure that around your calendar. And then when they when you actually conduct the research, we do things like connect with your Zoom to generate the video call links. We uh, help you facilitate sending out incentives and rewards. So when they actually complete the research, you can go say, hey, thanks for the, your time. Here's a gift card. And then on the back end, we actually will pull down your recording, transcribe it, provide you a place to take notes and, and then share, share with your team. Oh, man. So basically, you're making it easy to perform customer research because all those things sound super valuable. Yeah, it's 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 not one specific hard problem, but it's sort of death by a thousand cuts. You know, you got lots of little problems along this chain of this flow of this workflow and we bring them all together. And so instead of using 10 different tools and the spreadsheet and a Calendly link and trying to sort of sticky tape and blue tech them together, uh, we bring them all together and there's lots of sort of great wins uh, that come from that. I think the other thing I would say is easy to, if you're doing a one, you know, one uh, round of user research, maybe it's a little bit uh, overbearing, but when you start to think about how do you do research in an organization where there's multiple researchers, there's multiple software teams, things start to get really hairy, especially when you don't want to over-contact customers and you want to know, uh, start to capture learnings and start to draw trends across your, your research, it very quickly operationally becomes quite complex. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've even experienced that here as like a solo developer for the podcast. It's like just getting 50 people uh, scheduled and ready to go, like just the calendar aspect. It was like a lot of bookkeeping to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole role these days, right? You see this in, in larger companies, this, this role, research operations. And day in and day out, they are essentially doing that, which is booking in times. So just trying to make people's lives easier so that they can do the high value work ultimately. Nice. So when you say you trying to make their lives easier, are you specifically like the sole developer on this project or do you have a team around this one? So we have a team. Um, we're a team of three engineers at the moment. The company is seven people total. Yeah, three engineers. Uh, we've got another guy starting a couple of weeks uh, and we're also hiring as well. So we're, we're growing the team, but it's sort of been me and one other engineer. So the first six months of the business and, and now that we've... Uh, now that we've secured some seed funding, starting to scale out the team. 
Oh, congrats on the funding. Oh, yeah, super exciting. Um, it's uh, it's just a milestone, you know. It's it's now just you keep going. It's just more pressure and 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 yeah, new sets of challenges. Just a little more money to a little few more resources to work with. Yeah. So for those first six months, then was it just you and uh, your partner both co-developing this project together? And if so, like how long did it take to ship the MVP? Yeah. So we we started working on it about a year ago, uh, just under and. Um, Initially, it was just me coding. My my business partner Ned. We've worked together for for nearly ten years now. Uh, we we had probably had a had another startup together, which which did okay and was it was acquired by GoDaddy. It was a, was a win by by all sort of measures. And he's on the he's on the sales side. So our our classic phrase is sales and rails. Um, so I haven't heard that. That's a that's a good one. It's a good one, right? He's he he handles the you know the getting in front of customers and the fundraising and a lot of the that sort of side of things, marketing strategy. And I'm on the product build. And so you know the MVP, we probably had something out in in a month. We used we actually used uh, Jumpstart. Uh, I don't know if you know from from uh, is it Chris Oliver from Go Rails does a does a template Rails app. And so they got us off the ground really quickly. It's sort of like boilerplate billing and all those sorts of things. Uh, and we sort of had a product out, I would say, in about a month due to the complexity of what we're doing and all the touch points. It was probably a good three to four months before we really had something that that we could sell. Uh, and it was just the two of us for those first few months. And then at the beginning of the year, we we grew the team to, to four, uh, him, myself, and then another engineer and a designer. Nice. Yeah, I'm a little bit familiar with uh, Jumpstart and Jumpstart Pro. If you had to guess, like if you didn't have that available to you, how long do you think you would have spent with all that billing code that you had to have written yourself? At least a month, I would say. No, it's hard to say. I mean, estimation is, is inherently difficult, right? In my mind, I think I'm this amazing engineer who could have done it in a month. But realistically, it would probably to get the same level of coverage across all the different areas. And, you know, just even setting up asset pipelines and all this sort of, you know, CI scripts. It's It was a huge huge uh, value add, super huge, huge um, time saver. Yep, absolutely. So besides like the billing component of Jumpstart, did you use some other stuff too, like the notifications and just the idea of like having tenants? Yeah, so we're not using the, um, we're not using the subdomain tenants, tenancy stuff, but we obviously, it includes access tenant, the, the, the gem, we use that. We're using their noticed gem as well and the pay gem. Yeah, a good amount of it. Uh, we're using it's nice i would like to say we're using the the action cable stuff we're not but i would like to be using it um but i know it's there ready to go when if and when we want to nice yeah maybe now we can talk a little bit about just general motivation for using rails was it kind of just like you had a ton of experience or something else i mean pretty much i've been doing rails near on 10 years now and so the devil you know right it was very easy for me to pick up and start shipping and it's kind of where rails is still really powerful it's so quick to be able to ship mvps of relatively simple crud apps it's it's where it shines and so we actually started as your classic rails app we didn't have any react or typescript it was just sort of your server-side rendered views and it was just very quick to move because i'm so comfortable in that environment right yeah the uh, server-side views is like basically the Rails way, just sprinkles of JavaScript. Exactly. And st- I was actually my first time using Stimulus, which is sort of becoming the new the new cool with uh, with Rails 7 sort of, and Hotwire. But 
yeah, it, it works, right? I think very quickly we reach for these these front end tools that are just not necessary on those first first few iterations of a product. Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of Rails 7, maybe we can talk a little bit about your current version of Rails. Like, do you happen to use the latest stable version or master or something else? We're on 6.0 at the moment. I'm trying to upgrade to 6.1, uh, but having a couple of webpack issues uh, with some of our libraries. But yeah, we're Ruby 2.7.4 uh, and, and Rails 6.0. Nice. You think you're preparing to make the, the plunge to Rails 7 when it comes out? Maybe not the day of, but like near future kind of? Yeah, I think in general, I would like to keep keep us up to date on, on libraries. It's so easy to not, and I've worked on projects before you get in there and you become so far behind that the idea of upgrading becomes insurmountable. So we'll try and keep ourselves relatively current. I definitely think within the first couple of months of it being out, I'll, I'll at least have a look at it. Now, maybe before we dive into like specific Rails features that you might be using, do you just want to paint a picture of what it's like to use your application from an end user's point of view? Yeah, sure thing. Like what types of screens do you have and forums and whatnot? Yeah, so there's sort of, there's two two sides to our application. There's the researcher side, which is where you go and um, run your research and set up your studies. And then there's the candidate experience, which is what the, what your, your, customers candidates will see when they go and sign up for your research and so on the researcher side what that looks like our sort of core two primitives are studies and candidates candidates is like i said your customers and there's a table there with information about each of those that you can filter on add data add add profile information and try and decide who you want to work with on your research we sort of support all the all custom attributes so if you want to track job title that's you can do that if you want to track birthday go for gold once you sort of filter that down you can then go and create studies and studies like i mentioned earlier sort of several types but at the moment it's customer interviews it's surveys or it's prototype tests and you'll go and create a study to say cool i want to go and run a customer interview i want to talk to 10 people i'm going to offer them each a 20 dollars amazon gift card and i'm available on Friday afternoons for the next three weeks for them to book time. Once you set that study up, you can then go and find those candidates and send them out invites. And so we do nice things like help you customize landing pages so that when they land, when they when they get invited, they can land there and they can see, oh, this is what the study's about. This is the, the incentive. This is how long it's gonna take. It's a 30 minute call and this is what they're looking for. And we also provide assets for you to reach out to your candidates. So we provide you templates for your emails so you can go and sort of like a, a mixmax or a, a mixmax or a bulk send sort of functionality with merge tags to go and say cool hi name i'd like to invite you to my study blah 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 um or we uh provide custom links that you can go and share uh say in a forum or put in an email footer or on your on your homepage. page oh, very nice so when it comes to sending out those bulk emails then is that all just happening through background jobs on your end yeah so we actually we, su- we support it in two ways so short answer yes we use delayed job it'll happen asynchronously so if you go and send 50 emails we're not going to go and sit there and wait for them to send we support two methods of sending we do an integration with uh, google and outlook via a service called nihilus and so you can actually connect your gmail and send directly out of your inbox the other way is we also have our own mail servers we use a service called vero uh, which is a sort of an, an email marketing platform uh, and so you can send it via there one thing we do do which is super cool is 
We really believe uh, in candidate experience, right? So we say this people, not petri dishes. And so one thing that comes with that is not spamming people, right? You're going to go and do research with 10 people. It doesn't make sense to go and email a thousand people about about the research. And so we'll provide things such as batching to go and say, cool, I'm, I'm, I've got 10 spots. So go and email 10 people at random uh, every six hours until my until my study is full of, of candidates. And again, that's that's using a combination of of uh, delayed jobs and then also, um, well, I would say cron jobs, but it's actually Heroku scheduler. Same, same, but you know, slightly different. Okay. Yeah, that's actually really clever, right? So you're solving the problem of if you had a massive list and only 10 spots, you just don't want to send out a million emails knowing that you just have 10. Yeah, it's not a great experience if you click through to sign up for research and it's a waste of your time. That's a part of the value we really provide to our end users is this idea of managing the health of your panel. So another part of that would be when you go and filter who to talk to for your study, we actually hide a subset of your users from you. So you can set up in your account, you can say, I don't want to. I don't want people to participate in more than one in every five studies. And if they don't respond to two of my emails, don't email them again. So providing all these sorts of conditions to maintain the eligibility of your panel, so that you're actually conducting best practice research and, and respecting people's time and, and inboxes. Yeah, for sure. Now, by the way, you mentioned you are using Delayed Job, and I have nothing wrong with that library. Very good library. But just curious, did you weigh the pros and cons versus using Sidekick? Like, what led you down uh, using that? I one? actually, actually, I, you're, you're right. That's actually a, a misstep by me. We are actually on, um, we are actually on Sidekick. We are an active job, and I, I, the reason I forgot is because I didn't have to do anything because it was already set up with a. Uh, <laughs> with jumpstart right like there was all the job stuff already set up there so yeah we are on sidekick and, and active job which is that's actually kind of cool isn't it because it's like i mean you know what background library you're using but at the same time it's like the active job is such a good abstraction like you kind of don't care what the back end is it kind of just works 100 percent. i think that's a lot of that sort of stuff with with software i'm as that's the the gold standard right is just work and not have to think about it and deal with issues um, especially with that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of things that just work, hopefully, uh, do, you, do you want to maybe go over some either Rails features that you happen to be using or maybe also just extend on that and go over some gems that you have in your gem file? The well, I mean, We use a lot of standard stuff like device. Um, I'm trying to think. Let me actually, I'm actually just going to really quickly pull it up because that's going to be a lot better. Um, I will say that my favorite, my favorite Rails feature that I'm loving at the moment is the is the store, the store like helper, class helper or models uh, for using JSONB files, JSONB columns. It's been one of my favorite, favorite little helpers at the moment. But let me pull up my gem file. Okay, yeah, we'll circle back to the JSONB. Yeah, yeah, so I'm having a look. So like I said, we're using Notice and we're also using the, the pay rails gem from, from Chris as well. Um, devise, administrate for the backend, act as tenant, act as paranoid. There's nothing... I'd like to, I'm trying to find something that's novel, you know, like something that's like super cool using Sidekick and, um, and Datadog and Sentry, all that sort of stuff. I mean, like there's some sort of stuff that you always end up finding yourself using like counterculture. I'm a big fan of, it helps with performance, plugging into Algolia for search. So we're using their gem. We're plugging into Mux for video, uh, transcoding. So using their gem public activity yeah it's um you know it's pretty standard stuff nothing oh and obviously like omni auth out the wazoo you know 
Omnioth Google and Omnioth Calendly and Omnioth. Uh, there's a couple other ones there, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like you're using all the usual suspects, which again is like an awesome testament to Rails where it's like you can cobble all of these gems together, build a totally custom solution. I can cobble those gems together and build a different custom solution for a totally different app. And it kind of just works, mostly. 100%. I like this idea of, you know, in a startup sort of thinking about where am I actually providing value? You know, what, where, which part of the software should I own? and should be uh, internal and should I spend a lot of time thinking about and what stuff is is just is just sort of a tool that is facilitating me to provide that value I generally try and reach for gems and libraries or third-party services that are not core sooner rather than later right I was actually kind of surprised to see that you're using Mux now they're a great service like awesome video API service but uh, what aspect of your site is using that yeah so we use them for once you've completed an interview we will, and you've, if you've connected Zoom, we'll actually go and fetch the Zoom video and then use Mux to be able to render that in place so that we have this thing called the interview room and the interview room on the left-hand side is a document editor. We use Prose Mirror, which um, I actually really like. It's a little bit complex, but it's very, very powerful. And so we use Prose Mirror for the document editing. And then on the right, we have your, vi- your video that you just recorded uh, there with Mux and down below that is the transcript which we use assembly AI to to render that transcript so it's pretty cool yeah when it comes to using that AI to render the transcript like how accurate is that it's getting pretty good it's getting pretty good and they're doing some really cool stuff um, we spoke with them a couple of weeks ago and they're just really innovating things like looking at real-time so being able to get real-time transcripts they're looking at doing things where you can pass them a set of 10 domain specific words or so you can say look i think that they're going to be talking about these topics so these are words that you may not normally hear and they'll then sort of fit for those those terms so it's it's i would say it's good enough uh well, it's better than good enough but we are also still having to build i've got a story to play actually in the coming weeks which is let me edit a transcript because it's not always going to be perfect right yeah it's kind of funny how like all these applications come to fruition because it's like I don't, I don't know if you thought about this upfront about the transcript stuff, but now it's like editing transcripts is suddenly like, that's probably not the most easiest screen to build because there's so many moving parts. Like, I don't know if you've ever uploaded a video to YouTube, but like they sync it really nicely. There's, you need like playheads moving and like, you know, what point in time these little sentences are going to appear. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you can very quickly go down rabbit holes with these sorts of things. And, and, and often the, the, the user experience, the design can really, impact the, the technical complexity of what you're building we um we have this really beautiful sort of google calendar inspired booking page so you can go and say like drag and drop i'm available thursday afternoon and i'm available friday morning and set the blocks it's beautiful and i, I love the interface but by virtue of having that interface, it just introduces so much more complexity than just having drop downs uh, to say I'm available nine to five. People's expectations of how the software works and what the, what it can do just very quickly increase. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like the low tech solution for transcripts would be just like one gigantic text area and that's it. User experience maybe is like, mm, uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's actually a good question for you. Like how often do you find yourself kind of just really not agonizing, but making sure that you offer a like a user experience that feels like top notch versus just like settling because you just want to get it out there. Yeah, that's a good question. I would say in general, we we were more on the agonizing side. You know, I think that people's expectation of enterprise 
grade software or you know, business B2B software is, has really increased in the past few years. I think it used to be that if you're solving a business need, then people are a little bit more, I guess, forgiving. Uh, but I think now that because of the just high quality of consumer grade software, everyone sort of expects a suite of pretty high functioning UIs. And so, you know, you asked me earlier about how long did it take to ship your MVP? I think we're less and less finding the opportunities to ship these MVPs in a couple of weeks because people's expectations are just uh, ever increasing. Uh, so we're, we're super, I would say super customer centric, super focused on building really elegant products. That being said, it depends on the phase of the, of the, of, of, of the feature, right? You know, there's, there's features where we go, we just need to get something out version 0.1. And usually depending on the story, that might be a little more engineering driven versus stuff where we go, cool. Now we really understand the problem space and we do a lot of research around, uh, as we design UIs and UX. Now we really understand the problem space. Let's go and build the right solution and the elegant solution and, and really, you know, do it properly. Right. Yeah. That sounds like the best of both worlds where you get it out early, get actual customer feedback, then make it awesome based on customer feedback, which is actually a uh, kind of a leading question here. It's like, do you actually use your own service to get research on your own customers? Yeah. 100%. I mean, we <laughs> be a little weird if we didn't, but uh, yeah, 100%. We're still, I would say we're still formalizing how we think about research at our company, but we do a lot of it. So right from let me understand the problem space through to let me validate my prototypes through to cool. Now that you've actually I've feature flagged it and turned it on, on your, on your account, how did you go? So we, we, we try and touch our customers along the full life cycle of the journey. And it's something we really believe in. And then something that we're also obviously trying to integrate back into our product to make it super easy to, to sort of move to more, this sort of continuous life cycle uh, research. Okay. Now, just swinging back to a couple of those gems that you mentioned in your gem file, and now just talking about feature flags, do you happen to use feature flags internally in your app through a gem or no? No. So how we, back to Jason B columns. So how we, um, uh-huh. <laughs> how we handle feature flagging. So primarily feature flagging for us is an environment, environment based. So we have a YAML file, which says for development, these features are on, these are off for staging on off for demo on off and then for production in that we also have a another area there which is for our dog fooding account so our general process is turn it on in development turn it on in staging turn it uh like get it out in production dark launch like turned off but the code's out and then turn it on on our account once a feature is on our account in production then the it becomes available for any other account for us to in admin toggle that feature on for them as well and that's that's just an array, a JSONB array uh, stored on the account model. Nice. JSONB for the win. Oh, it's dangerous. <laughs> I'm curious though, on a scale of one to 10, like how amazing was it to introduce feature flags and being able to launch stuff dark, just knowing that like the code is sitting there, it didn't break just, you know, being pushed and run like your database migrations or whatever. Like, I don't know, to me, it was such a big mind shift thing to know that I can do these dark launches and then just turn them on and off as needed. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know how we would work otherwise. I mean, for us, we just like, we have to move quickly. We're a small team and speed is is so important. And you, I, I've been in teams before and I'm sure you have as well, where you're like, no one deploy, no, no one deploy the latest. We can't go out. Staging cannot be deployed to master because it's got breaking UI changes. And that just, or, or you end up with these massive pull requests that sit there 
that you go, oh, you can't merge this because we need to QA it more. And it's just, it's madness. It's absolute madness. It, it slows you down significantly and you just end up in these really weird states where, yeah, next thing you know, you haven't deployed in three weeks or some some weird thing. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, that usually is the the end result where things just don't get deployed, things pile up, things snowball out of control. Suddenly you have, like, you know, eight active pull requests at the same time and it becomes a mess. Yeah, I mean, in saying that, I think we've got probably a dozen open pull requests at the moment, but... <laughs> well, that's not too bad, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I think the worst thing for me is not being able to deploy master to production, right? Like, yeah. I should always be able to ship whatever the code is that we've got in master should be able to go out to production at any time. And so... The great thing about feature flagging as well is you turn it on and it doesn't work. You just turn it off again. <laughs> yeah. And so that's the other thing that I'm, that I'm looking to build is at the moment, all our feature flags on this YAML file, which is great, but it requires a deployment. And so pretty soon we're going to put in like a, an environment variable override as well so that you can go and say, whoops, that actually broke. Just quickly uh, change, the, change the environment variable and restart the server, turn it off. Right. So when it comes to that uh, just feature flag setup, do you kind of just introduce these feature flags, let them run for a bit? When you're happy with it, then you kind of just remove all the feature flag code and now it's just like part of the app? Yeah, pretty much. We sort of, we're getting, again, we're getting more rigor around it, but generally we go, so let's put it out for a week on our own account. Let's connect with those beta users that we did research early on, turn it on for them. And then when we're, when we're happy with it and potentially sequencing it with marketing, we'll go and turn it on. Removing it from the code base, it's usually very ad hoc. It's hey, I'm in this. It's, I'm in this area of code. Why do we still feature flagging that? Rip it out, or it's one day I get frustrated and I go and delete and puff it as an old feature flags. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah, you just become like feature flag police. Like every Friday at two p.m., you just go at it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're exposing another one, and you're like, why are we doing this? Um, and so one thing that we do, which is also super cool, is that we expose. Uh, a subset of feature flags to the to the front end you know we have like a, a who am i context endpoint which includes what's fe- was feature flagged and then we use react context provider and some hooks so that anywhere in the front end you can say use feature is it on or is it not on uh, which is super powerful love react hooks very nice yeah let's talk about the front end really soon but before we get there one last question about just gems you mentioned using the payments gem do you happen to use stripe or paddle or something else for your payment provider we use Stripe. We use Stripe. I, um, yeah, I, I'm a big fan. Right. Was that just one of those things where you used it in the past and it's Stripe because they were amazing and kind of just hooked it up and went with it? Pretty much. Yeah. I think, you know, thinking back on my past 10 years of working on or in various startups, it feels like that's just what I've used so much. And I've developed a fairly intimate knowledge of the API. I did, I've done contracts before rebuilding people's payment um, plans and stuff like that. So Again, you know, the devil you know versus the devil you don't, I think, often. And, and they're great as well. It's not really a devil, but familiarity just results in being able to move faster. Yeah, absolutely. And for the Stripe integration, are you using their self-hosted like elements feature or their checkout page or something else? No, we, again, at Jumpstart came with a lot of the billing code already go and, and they've got their own pay pay gym. And so it's so the only time I've had to, had to touch the payments code is when we moved our pricing model to a per seat pricing model so rather than charging on a account basis a charging for charging for users on your account okay yeah that makes sense and when it comes to dealing with all that stuff did you end up just rolling a couple of different stripe classes and interface with their straight up ruby library then yeah 100 percent. i think it still goes through the pay 
gem and passes through a quantity but yes we i there's a there's a poro a, a service object called a sound account seats upgrader or something like that and that goes and calculates what the actual value should be based on we have we have uh different user roles and so uh, on great question observer seats are free right so you can go and invite anyone on your team who just wants to have a look they shouldn't have to pay they're not running research and so we had to put a little bit of logic in there to actually calculate who is actually a, a paid seat versus a free seat okay yeah that makes total sense and and by the way you know you were joking around how you have quite a few open pull requests but it made me think like uh, and we don't really talk about this yet is this application then just the rails way basically just a, a big monolithic app that does everything and not in a bad way like in an awesome way pretty much pretty much um I'm a massive fan of mono repos, and uh, so everything's in one repo. And yes, it's, it's a monolith. The everything is is rendered by React or deployed by React. I pretty soon I'm gonna move. I will look at moving the JavaScript out uh, and looking at least putting it on a CDN, but possibly building a separate build pipeline. But it'll definitely sit in the same Git repository for as for a long time. I, I, inherent versioning, you know, it, it's brings me a lot of joy now is that like extra additional split up is that due to just like it becoming very large the front end or is it more because you're hiring more people now more so it's becoming quite large and i just think we could make it a lot faster the the build time you know sci sci takes uh test week takes about 11 minutes to run everything at the moment um and that's including just some recent work i've done with parallelization of our of our system tests and a good portion of that is is asset asset compilation. Um, so I could see a world. It'll mostly be for performance and and keeping things sort of working, for lack of a better word, rather than probably scaling out the team. Okay. Now I don't know if you're going to have these numbers off the top of your head, but like if you had to guess, like how much lines of code do you think you have on the back end versus the front end? We've got about twenty five thousand lines of Ruby code on the on the back end that's excluding tests and we've got about forty thousand lines of of typescript code um, interesting yeah so quite a bit more on the front end but i mean a lot of what your app does is on the front end so and ruby is ruby so <laughs> not too much code that needs to be written i suppose yeah exactly that's that's dot rb files so there's obviously all the views templates that would add to add to that but yeah I, I mean you've just got so much more on the front end right every single html component is a, is a typescript component or html entity is a is a TypeScript component now, whereas the 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 bounds of what's done in the back end is a little more more fixed or constrained. Right. So when it came to doing the front end with TypeScript, is that just more like the devil you know, or like did you feel like it was worth it to start this new project with TypeScript because of the benefits of it? Yeah, I mean it was interesting. I'm I'm, I'm all a fan of doing things, do the simplest thing possible, and, and then refactor or to introduce new technology as it makes sense. So we started off with just a straight Rails app, and that was great. And then one day there was a design that involved a significant amount of front-end interaction and we made a decision to go and uh, reactify that particular page. We did that for a while and then we started to find bugs and issues that were really uh, avoidable. And so we said, look, this is hurting us at this point. Let's move to TypeScript. And so we went and retrofitted everything to TypeScript. I'm a huge fan. We're not a single page app yet. We're not the the API front end split. We have standalone React apps, for lack of a better phrase, where the candidates table is its own React app. The 
studies page is its own react app and they share components but i'm still a little tentative to make the whole thing one big react app uh, i've just, i've been burnt before dealing with authentication and all that sort of stuff and all the higher sort of account level context that happens when you start to all the state stuff that happens when you start to build an spa that trying to sort of not get too ahead of ourselves on that one yeah i've never built an spa before but i know I have built things with Phoenix and Elixir where there's a lot of state serve server side where, yeah, just it can get weird when you get a big application because it's like you need to be really tight with your code. 100%. And then you go and you create a new resource and now you've got these lists that are stored in some state that you now need to append it to and you go and update the your name and now you got to make sure that every place that your name is used has to be updated. So it's kind of nice having that, this, <laughs> that fallback that, there's certain page page uh, refreshes that are going to happen in, in any in every session. Yeah, because it's almost like a get out of jail free card. Like, yay, everything just got reset in the page refresh. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. And there's been times before where I've been so tempted to do that, right? You like do some very complex front-end interaction. It's like, oh, maybe I'll just refresh the whole page right here. Window reload. <laughs> yeah. So I've got a question for you. Let's say we lived in an alternate universe and Hotwire Turbo was out super stable, been been using for like the last like five years. Do you think you would have built your app using this or do you still would have went API uh, React frontend? Good question. I think we would have started with it. I think the flow would have been very different. We would have started the same with Rails and we would have very quickly moved to the Hotwire world and seen how far this, seen how far that has got, would have gotten us. I'm not sure what things like a, you know, rich text document editor look like in that world and certain front-end components with with the advent of hooks and and typescript react is much more pleasurable to work in than it's ever been i really enjoy i really enjoy using it so i'm not sure i'm not sure um you know i think that you've got this you've got two questions there's two sides of that question i think when it comes to startups or any company really it's what's the best technological decision but then also how am I going to resource the team? And so that's another thing I'm thinking about, which is by having a significant amount of JavaScript, it does afford us the opportunity to bring on people who maybe are just JavaScript experts. And there's a lot more engineers out there. That are, well, I, from what I've seen, there's JavaScript's almost sort of ubiquitous at this point. And so that would be something I'd be thinking about as well is, is what, what bets do we want to take from a technology standpoint to be able to build the team that can, then that can execute on the vision. Right. Yeah. That makes total sense. And I mean, with your app, if there really are those components that need like a react front end, because it's super uh, interactive, like, you know, document rich text editor, it almost becomes not like weird, but like if you have to make your whole app using Hotwire Turbo, but then by the way, like you also still need to use react for these like five other things. It's like at some point, maybe just using react all the way is just a better option in your case. Totally, totally. I, you know, this idea of anything that you use has to be a first class citizen, uh, that, that any technology you're introducing, you want your whole team to be bought in and to have some context on it. And you start to have different ways of doing things. There's really this risk that you create these second class citizens in your, in your application and that they sort of get left by the wayside. So I definitely am I'm a big proponent of, of fewer tools used well. Yeah, actually, that's a really good lead way into something else, like using fewer tools. Have you been keeping up with DHH's videos about using ES build instead of Webpacker for the Rails front end? Oh, no, but but 
Um, that excites me. I mean, <laughs> Webpacker is probably the one thing that I would say I, frustrates me the most about Rails. <laughs> yeah. Now, he just released a video uh, in early September, a couple days ago, recording this one, where he demonstrates using ES Build along with React and Tailwind, and everything is just integrated super nicely with Rails, but they're all in separate gems. So it's like you can technically even use this with Rails 6. The intent, it's going to be built into Rails 7. But now if you want to use it, yeah, you've got the setup to where you could really get a React running, uh, React app running with ES build and potentially drop all of Webpack. Yeah. And I would imagine like those 11-minute CI build times could drop to, uh, who knows, right? Maybe two minutes instead. <laughs> well, I mean, the Ruby code still needs to be run. Yeah. bar is still going to slow me down, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I mean, it generally works, but I've just found that when it doesn't work, it can be a bit of a, a nightmare to debug with Webpacker. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of those things where, like I have an example Rails Docker application on GitHub, and it was one of those things like now that it's set up, I can't, like I'm afraid to touch it because I know if I touch it, like the whole world is going to explode. And if I try to bump it up to like a different version, it ends up becoming like a three-day journey instead of uh, hopefully just running a command and, and being good. Mm, mm. which is really you've got to watch those things in code bases right like fear of touching something is a total smell um i think about that in terms of some of our areas of code base and, and providing more more testing coverage because the last thing you want is these black box systems where people say i oh, just don't touch the uh bookings controller because we don't know how it works anymore um it's dangerous yeah so actually do you have any other examples in your code base where you're in that state now kind of there's nothing that I would say has reached that point yet. Um, there was definitely a time, actually to say bookings, it's not far from the truth. There was a time without how we handled bookings where it was becoming a little bit opaque, but I spent a, I've spent a significant amount of time refactoring that and obviously adding a bunch more tests. So it's it's something I'm very conscious of, especially that's, that's probably as we... You know, as you grow the team, that's probably the number one thing I'm thinking about, right? Is how do I make sure that there's testing in place and the, the code is clean enough that any of the team can get in there and, and understand it to enough of a degree to make the changes they need for, this, for the stories they're working on. Right. That's actually super interesting. Yeah. It almost becomes like the team members are in a way like accountability partners to the code that you write. Like you need to write good enough code to where they can actually make sense of it. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea. It's not definitely not one of my own, but it's, I can't remember who t was talking to me about it, but this idea of writing code for either your future self or for your teammates. And so not thinking about the problem you're solving, but how is this going to be when someone else wants to come in here and work with it? And am I actually doing them any favors by setting it up the way that I am and the method names that I'm using? So it's a really interesting lens to think about when you're writing your code. Yeah, absolutely. And in a similar vein, uh, now that you're growing the team a bit, or maybe you're doing it already, do you go like all in with the idea of using either like Basecamp or Jira tickets to basically write all these things up in super detail before anyone even writes code out? Yeah, so we, our general workflow is that we, we're sort of agile with a, with a lowercase a. Um, we sort of take some inspiration from Kanban and, and that sort of side of things where we have a sprint, a sprint board and we have a, a backlog of cards and Asana. And we go into a relative amount of detail around what needs to get built. So most cards will have, you know, uh, the context, the, the user story, so to speak. They'll have Figma designs. They might have a, wa a walkthrough, a Loom recording. They may even have links to Great Question about the research that was done around that, 
that that functionality we don't get too prescriptive as a team about how engineers individual engineers build their the features they're working on so we'll after we decide decide as a business we say cool this week these are the goals and this is the sprint and we're all you know this is our our commit and this is what we're, we're going to try and hit as an engineering team we'll then commit uh connect separately after that to go okay cool how are we dividing up this work and also where's where in the co-base should we be you know like some of the higher level conversations around oh, i'm thinking maybe it would be good if we introduce these models or the service class or here's a gotcha over there be careful of that one um we have those conversations but they're fairly ad hoc or not ad hoc but fairly like informal okay yeah it's always interesting because i'm just starting to join a team now that's starting to get a little bit bigger and like the idea of the bus factor is actually real. Like if one person just has a ton of knowledge about something and they go away, either they get hit by a bus, win the lottery, or just decide mm. to quit. Like, do you do anything in your current setup to help protect against that? Where like if someone's working on one area of the code base, like they actually like document what they're working on so someone else can pick it up? <laughs> no one's allowed to walk in front of buses. <laughs> okay. No. Um, getting better at it. I mean, I... One thing I picked up early on in my career, so I started at ThoughtWorks, and uh, which I really enjoyed. I really liked how they think about agile and around, around software development. And you know, ideally, your your automated tests are documenting how code works, right? So ideally, you're going and writing tests that really explain the functionality of the underlying code. We do litter certain comments around the code base, like to do this is going to bite us in the ass when we come back here or you know being pretty explicit around hey here are the limitations of what i've built but i don't know i don't think it's i wouldn't say it's an elegant solution um i'm not right. sure yeah there, there is that sort of that institutional knowledge um another thing we have started doing actually which is quite um, relevant is we've just spun up a new repo called uh playbooks and scripts and so the idea is some bug will have inevitably happen and you'll have to go and run some sort of um one-off process or or um, piece of code and we'll go and capture that so okay cool if uh if someone complains that a calendar event isn't showing up here's the pieces of code that i ran this is where i was looking this is what i did and so trying to build up this sort of knowledge base of of debugging practices or or processes that we use as a team yeah that's really cool i love that idea and we're doing something similar on this team as well. But yeah, those things help a lot, especially when things go wrong, just to have a checklist to reference. So you're not starting off at ground zero. Yeah, we also, part of it also, we now include it in our, um, uh, you know, our, our, like bash profile with a set of uh, like commands. So as like a classic example, we run Breakman for, for, security, uh, for security vulnerability testing. Breakman will fail the CI build and then often you'll then have to go and run it locally. But obviously that's not just a run Breakman. There's a few arguments you have to pass in. So then wrapping that up into a into a command that everyone will get if they have scripts installed on their, on their computer so they can just run Breakman update and it will run the exact command that everyone will always run for that. Super cool. Yeah, I love little tools like that. Like they go a really, really long ways because it's basically like having active documentation kind of like instead of writing a readme file and hear how to do it like you actually just run the command then it does it 100 percent. the other thing i that i've just added is left hook which i'm not sure if you're familiar but it's essentially a wrapper around git hooks and so that'll run our our eslint our prettier um it'll run standard rb so all those sorts of things because inevitably otherwise you forget to do it and then the build fails so 
Right. So does that run it as like a pre-commit hook or a pre-push hook or something like that? Yeah, I think we run some of it. We run some of the formatting stuff as a pre-commit and then we'll do like a final check on pre-push um, just on the staged files or on the, on the diff. Right. Yeah, because some of those would take quite a while to run on every commit, especially if you're one of those folks who kind of like to create a lot of Git commits before you actually push something and then kind of make it nice afterwards. Like waiting five minutes every time you make a commit would be kind of lame. Totally. You don't want to... You don't want to put a, put processes in place that get in the way of developers doing their job and doing it well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe now we can switch gears a little bit and talk about the rest of your tech stack. So you mentioned you are using JSON B column, so probably using Postgres and using Sidekick and Redis, I would imagine. Uh, is there anything else that we haven't discussed here? Um, I mean, that's the the main ones. We're, we're on Heroku, which I sort of briefly mentioned before. We use Algolia for some search stuff, which is super cool. Trying to think if there's anything on the infrastructure side. Okay, what about in terms of like SaaS apps that we haven't talked about yet, like Stripe and Mox? Is there any other ones? Um, there's nothing. We use Segment. We use um, uh, Mixpanel. We use Nihilus, which I mentioned for the for the for the calendar email abstraction. We use Datadog, which I'm a massive fan of. I love what they're doing. Um, that's that's the main ones. Right. So for Datadog, we pronounce it differently, Sorry, but it's okay. We can I still can... be friends. <laughs> data, data dog. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, are you all in with them? Like using them for, what do they have? Uh, there's like one really cool feature they have where you can do some type of tracing. Like you can actually get a complete link between the requests coming in and like the logs produced by that. Spot on. Yep. So we have the, the tracing set up with the logs. And so it's, it's such a great experience because you can, you can look at a log and then go and actually look exactly the performance of that particular request. Most most of what we're using them for on a day to day basis is the is the logging, um, being able to you know we use is it is it LogRage to be able to send up JSON um, logs up to data Datadog, and then uh, being able to create facets on, facets on that stuff to be able to search and and very quickly debug. It's um. It's super cool. We obviously run some some stuff on there to anonymize the data before it, before it gets through there, but it's very powerful. Um, and we also just turned on some of their their like their real time user monitoring stuff, so being able to actually look at performance of first paint and all that sort of first first content and all that sort of stuff. They also just released I don't know if you saw, but a set of tools for CI as well. So visibility around um, failing tests and test speed and stuff like that, which they don't yet support um, mini test on GitHub Actions, which is which is what we're doing. So, um, but when they have that, I'm super excited to play with that as well. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I haven't heard about that yet, but now it's something on my to do list for sure. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, it's more visibility into your into your continuous integration suite is always a good thing. Yeah, for sure. Now with Datadog, they're keeping track of things. Do you also have them set up to notify you of certain types of errors, like over email or pager duty type of stuff? Yeah, there's certain logs that we, the, the certain events that we track. Again, I, I need to get better at it. Um, I would love to just have someone who lives and breathes this this world, but we don't have that luxury. So I'm doing a bit of everything, but um, you know, some basic stuff. So if there's a bunch of 500s, I want to know about it pretty much immediately. Uh, we also look at things like 422s. So looking and saying, cool, well, they're getting a lot of valid more validation errors than, than is normal. Something... I wish they did, which they don't, which I think I'm going to be able to set up in Mixpanel though, is actually looking at uh, business level metric alerting. So this idea of going and saying, well, 
my conversion rate usually sits at about whatever, say 10%, arbitrary number. But usually sits at 10%, which well, just dropped down to 0% or 2%. Something might be broken. Um, so looking at doing some of the alerting around that, but that's definitely more on the, on the, on the, a different way to sort of try and track if we've actually pushed broken changes rather than more on the, on the infrastructure side of things. Yeah, that's a, a really awesome idea. Cause I mean, I don't know about you, but like testing front end code is actually pretty difficult. I would imagine maybe not, I don't know if it's easier or harder with react, but like, yeah, if, if your primary form that you're looking for conversions on, like if that button for whatever reason doesn't fire and you don't have a test for it, now your conversion rate zero, it's like that can actually happen. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than finding out about a bug from your customer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, ideally, you know about it sooner, you know, because if it's coming to you in a support ticket, it means that it's probably not the first time it's been hit. So we do some we do some automated tests with Capybara, you know, and, and sort of headless Chrome uh, clicking through and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, constantly thinking about how we can build more more robustness and, and reliability into the product and, and also more sort of yeah safeguards so that when things do break that we know about them as soon as possible. Yeah. Now, speaking of safeguards, and earlier you mentioned that you do kind of redact some sensitive data through Datadog. Do you want to go over your strategy for doing that? Like, is, do you just run it through like a custom tool that kind of just strips out certain fields or do you replace that with fake data? At the moment, we just use the, the Rails sanitization to the logs and we filter on a set of um, fairly like large criteria to remove all of that haven't haven't thought about um replacing it um pseudonym pseudonymizing it or whatever you would call it but um that would be cool yeah at the moment it's just like name filtered email filtered and we also anonymize ips as well okay because yeah that's always an interesting discussion point because now that your team is building and you know you have a couple developers on the team like do any of them have access to production data if so is it in like a limited way or yeah, that's exactly right. And it's something that we're building out more. I don't know if you saw the the Basecamp library that just came out recently or got sort of bumped version number, the, the um, console 1984. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to give the TLDR to folks out there who haven't seen it? Yeah. So console 1984, essentially, it's a, it's a safeguard or a layer of security around r- running uh, Rails console so that if you go and console into production, rather than seeing the actual data when you run a query such as user.all, you see an encrypted version of that data. Uh, what it then does is if you do need to interact with the underlying data, you can call a decrypt command. Uh, but before you get access to that information, you have to be very explicit around why you're accessing it and leave a message, which then gets stored. So then you, be, from that, by doing so, you then have a audit log of every time that someone's accessed production data and the reason that they've done that. And I believe it even tracks the commands that were run to be able to see what they were doing when they were in there. Super cool. Yeah, absolutely awesome. And then, yeah, combined with the idea of now you can just encrypt every field in your database is... Uh... That's remarkably awesome because doing that by hand, I would imagine, would be very, very, very hard. Oh, yeah, yeah. And again, it comes back to this idea of like, what's my core business, right? Like, I don't think that... Yeah. Um, and I think Rails 7 supports a bunch more nuanced encryption stuff as well, doesn't it? There's like field level encryption that they're rolling out, something like that mm-hmm. I saw the other day. So yeah, it's just becoming so much more relevant these days, the world we live in around privacy and, and encryption. It's, it's uh, is that, What's that phrase? Every... Every SaaS company is is really a security company in disguise. (laughs) That is definitely true. Yeah, that's a good one. Now, speaking of Heroku a little bit, we didn't really get a chance to touch on that. Do you want to go over things like, you know, why you chose Heroku and how that 
you know, you might have things set up there with add-ons and whatnot? Yeah, we, we've got a fairly light Heroku setup. Um, why I chose Heroku, again, I've used them before. For what we're doing, it's it's just the, the quickest lever to get out to production. Um, it's, I mean, you're probably noticing a theme here, which is speed to markets, ability to move quickly and doing anything beyond what they do. It just it creates more work for the team and therefore it just slows us down. We also were fortunate enough to receive some credits from them as part of the startup program. You know, we went through Y Combinator and they've got some some pretty uh, friendly friendly offerings there. So, so we're on them at the moment. And, you know, at some point we may look to go and move on to say a, a Google Cloud or an AWS um, or a Microsoft Azure for that matter. But when the timing is right and probably when we have enough resource, like when we, when we have enough resources to do so. But yeah, I'm actually having a look now and now our add-ons are heroku postgres heroku redis heroku scheduler and that's pretty much it (laughs) right yeah it's pretty cool that you have all that set up just using a couple add-ons and the whole application do you know how many workers that you happen to run as well as uh just web dinos yeah we run um two dinos and we run like a and one one worker that sort of processes everything so you know we're still we're still relatively early and so a lot of our our, we haven't really hit scaling challenges yet um so we're running yet two of their performance dinos which are 2.5 gigs and eight eight cores and does the trick yeah it's kind of funny because like i mean at the end of the day like that's actually a pretty beefy server especially since it's just for that one component it's not like running your database and redis and everything else as well yeah it's great <laughs> um, yeah i can i mean i can i can imagine a world where i've heard stories where Heroku bills can very quickly get quite unruly, um, but I mean, that's also kind of a good problem to have, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you start talking about having to pay someone like a dedicated apps person to set everything up in AWS for you. Suddenly it's like, well, full-time app salary versus Heroku. Heroku is probably going to be better in the end to some extent. Yeah, 100%. I think what would probably get us off there, yeah, I don't think I think there'd be other reasons that we would migrate off Heroku that wouldn't be cost first. Like I think if it would be more around control and around um, certain visibility into certain things and configuration that would likely get us moving off um, Heroku sooner than um, than the cost. You know, maybe whether that's you know being able to do proxying at the server level or uh, load balancing, upload balances, and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. Now, on the Heroku side of things too, you mentioned you are using a couple of those different add-ons. When it comes to Postgres add-on, do you know what size database server you have and like roughly how much data you have? Like not down to the byte, but you know. I, I don't know the specifics. I mean, it's obviously ever increasing. I know that we're like at the moment we're on a standard, like just their standard database. But yeah, I don't know what the um, the specifics of how many gigabytes of data we actually have at the moment, sorry. Yeah, okay, that's no problem. Now, maybe we can talk a little bit about your deploy process. So do you want to walk us through what it's like to develop a feature locally? Like, is it in a feature branch and then how it makes its way into CI and then eventually Heroku? Yeah, awesome. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, So how our workflow generally works is as follows. You pick up a story, you cut yourself a feature branch, so feature slash new something or other. You start working on it, you write your system tests and, the, and, and some integration tests and probably some unit tests, hopefully, um, and build out the feature. When it's at a point where you want to get eyes on it, so usually before it's actually ready to merge, we'll open up a pull request in GitHub and provide all the context there to say, hey, look, this is what I've built. Um, we have like a little template there, you know, 
This is the links to my Asana task. This is the links to the designs. Here's what I've changed. Here's how I've tested it. Here are some screenshots and here's whether it's ready or not to merge. We require at least one person from the team to review and approve that pull request before it can get merged into, into the main branch, into master. But as it stands, um, you know, everyone will go and have a look. And so we'll all go have a look and review. We're pretty, um, I wouldn't say liberal, but we're very particular about whether it's a approval or a request for changes. So I'm of the opinion that if it works and there's nothing dangerous, no security issues with it, and there's nothing like that's going to break anything, then it should be approved. You, you know, I think very easily we can get stuck in this rabbit hole of what are ultimately stylistic, uh, opinionated changes that shouldn't block someone from being able to merge their code in. Yeah, so once the pull request is raised, we use GitHub Actions, which will kick off a, a set of, of CI um, tests. That includes some static tests, such as Breakman, uh, Standard RB. There's a couple of other ones that, that get run that don't come to mind. So sorry to interrupt you yeah, real quick it. there. Standard RB, is that an alternative to RuboCap? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was, um, it's pretty much the same and it was running on our, um, it, it was there when we <laughs> pulled in Jumpstart. And so, uh, it works. It works well. It fixes stuff. Um, I don't know what the specific differences are, but, um, yeah, it's sort of, it, it does the trick. I'm just having a look now. We also check, oh, uh, we also do like a, a Zwork check on the, on the models because I don't know if you've had this experience before, but I've had issues where my code will pass the tests, but then will fail in production at runtime. Um, and so we actually make sure that all your class names are the same as your file names and then it can auto auto load everything. Ooh, yeah, that's a tricky one. Something you don't want to have happen in production, but actually happens. Oh, it's a, it's a worry when your entire CI test suite can run and pass and then the server can't start. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good look. Um, so we run that. We run some, we've got a lightweight uh, JavaScript unit tests that run. And then we've got our unit tests that run on the CI and the system tests, which I mentioned earlier, which are, which are paralyzed. We actually use a service called Knapsack Pro which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but for those that aren't, Knapsack will, you send up the data around the, the runtime of your tests and how many how many uh, workers, how many uh, workers you're paralyzing across, and it will intelligently give you the tests to run on each machine so that you don't end up running your all your five-minute tests on one box and your, all your short tests on another, but rather try and get them to be as, as, um, as equal as possible in terms of duration. Super cool. Yeah. Um, that sounds very useful. It's so handy. It just, yeah, I mean, it's, there's nothing worse than spending 20 minutes waiting for CI to run. Once it gets uh, approved, we merge it into master and it'll go immediately after staging. So Heroku will pick up the passing build on, on GitHub and it will deploy out to staging. We run QA. We have different QA sort of processes depending on the type of feature. And then at some point, um, usually once every couple of days, we'll deploy to production and as it currently stands, deployment to production is merging master into production branch and production branch runs through the test and then deploys out. That works. That works. Um, I would like to get to a world where we are promoting artifacts, um, building once and then pushing it through our different environments rather than rebuilding the entire app. But for what it currently is, is a Rails monolith and a relatively simple setup, it's, it's okay. We also have a, a demo environment 
which we also deploy to. So when we deploy to production, we also deploy to demo environment. And that's the environment that um, that my business partner uses to to demo the software that's got a little bit more stable in terms of feature flags than the staging environment, which usually has bleeding edge. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because I remember earlier you mentioned the demo server and I was wondering how that played into the staging server as well. But yeah, it's a really way, uh, nice way to go about that one. And such like, it's not like an obvious feature, but it's like such an obvious, not obvious, but like such a common thing to want to do with any SaaS app to be able to demo it in like an actually secure manner and not worry about like, oh, by the way, like these 17 feature flags are enabled and hopefully it works. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. It was, it was born out of necessity um, multiple times where we were moving really quickly and turning things on and testing and staging and would step into a customer demo and click around and go, where the, where, where did everything go? Where's this feature? And it's it moved. <laughs> and so we don't have the, you know, we're moving really quickly and showing a lot of customers the software. And so we don't have the time to go and say, hey, I'm about to go into a demo. Well, what should I expect when I, when I log on? Um, yeah, it's just much nicer if, if it's essentially a, a production like environment not in terms of production like in terms of infrastructure they're all production like but production like in terms of the feature set that's turned on yeah and by the way when you open those prs do you actually also spin up a heroku dino or a worker just so you can see the application specifically before you merge it not yet not yet i would like to like the review apps i would like yeah. to get to that point um at a current size and with feature flagging it's not super necessary because Pretty much everything can get is always mergeable or should be relatively mergeable but there is a world where that will come especially when we start to look at doing i think bigger um looking at doing bigger features or working on changes that we maybe don't want to merge in so i would like to but again just time time to set it up <laughs> right no that makes sense and by the way just curious do all of your developers have admin access to your github repo um i don't think so actually um i don't know i can't remember what the actual different access levels are yeah you, I, I, I don't i mean they can't they can't all get into the billing side of things i know that much but um we don't we're pretty tight on our security requirements we're actually going through uh SOC compliance at the moment and so defining a lot of these processes and so really trying to tighten down the screws to say well who should be able to access what so for example definitely no not everyone can access production data um, I think every engineer obviously has access to the code and can raise pull requests and all that sort of stuff, but I can't remember exactly what the, the admin permissions are, so what, whether or not they do. Okay. Yeah, and like on a similar vein too, it's like with Heroku, because it's really interesting. It's a problem that I've dealt with in the past, and I don't know what the best solution is, but it's like, let's say you have a team of developers, five developers, right? And you want to modify your code base in a PR that depends on a new environment variable to exist in Heroku or mm -hmm. whatever platform that you're on. Like that means I would guess someone with elevated privileges would need to run the Heroku command to add the environment variable because not all developers have access, I guess. Like how do you guys deal with that one? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, they've got, everyone's got access on the staging environment, but yeah. Hey, excuse me. Can you go and please add this in? Um, and then we'll go and do that. I'm just having a look now. We'll, everyone else just has right access on our, on our, on our GitHub repo, but it is actually a problem. I think Heroku does offer some stuff around the, the app JSON configuration and, and saying what's actually required in terms of in variables. Um, I'm not sure if if the build fails, the deploy fails, if those aren't set. Um, but yeah, we're also doing, just while we're on the topic of it, we, we also use the, the Rails secrets, the Rails credentials um, 
stuff as well for encryption and the environment specific encryption and so not everyone has the production keys to be able to go and add all the api to- and auth tokens to that file okay yeah that makes sense now for sure and that's also a great way to go about that one i'm curious have you ever run into a situation and feel free to just not answer this question if you're not comfortable did you run into a situation where something bad happened and some api keys got leaked then you just had to like re-roll the keys oh no no we've we um we're pretty tight on that and we're pretty conscious of making sure that we're we're only exposing what we need to expose i'm trying to think the only times that i found found it challenging is where you sign up to services where you don't have environment specific tokens and so just being real careful um around are we okay putting this token across all three uh configurations um the the bigger problem that i find and i don't know if you've experienced this with rails encryption is I try and get everyone to add new API tokens directly onto master because, or like as a separate pull request and then straight into master because if two people raise pull requests and change the encrypted file, it's a, it's a very painful merge conflict. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine that's a bad one. <laughs> it's like, which, which version do you want? Um, so yeah, those are the, probably the more of the challenges that we have around that. But yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't yet had an instance when we've leaked keys, but um, it's definitely something that I think I should be thinking about more in terms of process because that would be really painful to go and essentially have to go and redo everything. Yeah, for sure. Now, talking about maybe unexpected events or just other disaster scenarios, uh, how do you have databases being backed up and as well as user uploaded files or maybe some of those Mux videos that get generated? Yeah, we don't. Most of the stuff we rely on the platforms for what they offer. So like Heroku as an example is pretty good um, options with Postgres to, to, to back it up and, and offer that there. But um yeah, we do that. And then obviously we have some files on S3. Again, I, yeah, I, I rely mostly on the third-party providers, especially with Postgres, to to provide those those the backups, which Heroku is really great. Yeah, something I haven't really had, had issues with to date. Okay. Did you ever end up testing one of those backups, like on the staging server, just to make sure that it works? Uh, no, but I, 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 I'm going to take that as an action item to to do it sooner rather than later. I've, I've, I've had experience with it before, not specifically for, for, this, for this app, but... Um, at a very funny story, a little bit of a digression, but uh, very early on in, in one of it, in our first startup, we were using MongoDB and um, and Mongoid, and I had to go and update the status of a task. Right, so tasks had like a status, and it was, and a certain subset of them I had to update from from started to completed, and there was something around the timeless. The way that you did timeless updates. So I didn't want to update the timestamps, right? So I went and I said, cool, tasks where project ID is this uh, without timestamps, update to completed. And what I didn't realize is that the the timeless uh, chained command doesn't call on the query that you've (laughs) you've already built up. And so instead of uh, updating five or six tasks to being completed i updated every single task to being completed to being completed <laughs> and it was very confusing when i looked at the dashboard and go wow it's been a really busy really busy week this week and i was like oh no well that's actually every single task on the platform uh, and, so, <laughs> and so yeah um had to do some database stuff there and it was it was totally fine but um yeah then you raise a really good point which is doing some 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 more sort of i guess like uh, I guess scenario um, 
what do you call it but yeah like to, testing out some of those scenarios and playing them as if they're real life and going cool we have to roll to a backup what is that what's that experience and writing some of those scripts um yeah definitely something that that needs to be happening as part of our, our instance response plans right so keeping on the style of disasters you know earlier you mentioned that you do have Datadog set up to where you'll get notified if you get a certain amount of errors, but do you also have that hooked up to Heroku or any other way for you to get notified if your site goes down or maybe your dyno is getting overloaded or something like that? Yep. Yeah, so we have we have a Heroku, Heroku alert set up for all those sort of major metrics. We also have, actually, uh, better uptime at the moment. We're thinking about maybe moving to like sort of a pingdom or something like that, but we have some basic uptime monitoring. The other thing as well that I'm just putting on at the moment is super cool... Um, service which actually is another heroku add-on called labrato i've not heard of that one uh, and so it's cool man it's um labrato is you know stuff just works so labrato provides you really specific heroku metrics and so we're using that for that'll expose me my postgres load average my my memory of my postgres my number of http status requests it's, it's pretty much bespoke not bespoke but it's really tightly mapped to all the uh infrastructure metrics you can get at heroku and so using those guys to set up some more alerts around database and sort of the lower level uh infrastructure things that you just want to make sure that that are all just singing that's awesome I'm actually curious does it use pg extras under the hood to get uh postgres information back like you can see if you're doing uh you know like cache misses on your indexes and stuff like that yeah, I'm not sure if they're that depth of level. I'd have to dive into it, but I think most of it's coming out of the out of the database, uh, like the Heroku level database logs. Yeah, yeah. With that stuff, it's like you can never have enough, right? It's always useful to be able to see your metrics and what the current things are at. Uh, yeah, well, there's nothing worse about not having insight into why something happened, right? Because you go and you say, this is actually in general a problem, not a problem, but a challenge with any sorts of metrics, whether they're infrastructure or application level is if you haven't instrumented the stuff and then you realize you need it, it's very annoying to be able to go and say, oh, actually, oh, we forgot to track that. So we don't know if that was the reason. Um, so for sure, more is always is always better. Yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah, maybe to flip this over and start talking about some good stuff, like what are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this app? I think the best tips I would say is I'm really happy with how we've approached testing. I think that we need to get better for sure. And, and as we're rolling out the team, I would say, uh, I'm definitely conscious about building out. We just installed code, CodeCov to start actually ratcheting our code coverage up, but being really sort of pragmatic about that to say things like, yes, I should system test all of my important flows, happy path, sign up, um, be able to do the main user flows, and I should unit test all of my really complex logic, but I don't necessarily need to get wrapped around the axle of testing anything and everything when I'm moving at lightning fast speed that I'm just gonna to have to change this code in a couple of weeks or a month. So being sort of conscious of well, how important is this code and am I actually going to, is it here for the long term? Should drive some of your testing strategy because testing can, can slow you down a little bit, I think sometimes. That being said, when a bug comes up, you better you better go and put a regression test around that. That that would be one. I think the other thing would be don't over engineer problems. Do do the simplest thing that works. You know, we started as a Rails straight Rails way for a very long time, and now we've gone and put in React and TypeScript, and life is great. But we could have burnt you know weeks trying to 
you know, all the boilerplate sitting their stuff up and thinking about how we structure our API and all these solved all these problems that aren't core to just the user's problems and getting the, the, the software out into their hands to really understand. And then I think the third thing, and it's probably not deeply engineering, but we work we work really tightly with design. And so I work really tightly with our designer to be able to understand what's the problem we're trying to solve here and then inform his decisions to say, this is the constraints we're working with. Can I solve it this way instead? This Because now that we both understand what the why is, let's talk about the how, and that should be a conversation. Um, there's nothing worse than going down an absolute rabbit hole to design some very complex interaction that could have gotten solved with just putting a, a slightly different UI element there that does 99% of the same thing. Yeah, those are all great tips for sure. And for the last one, just since we're talking about the user design stuff, does your designer actually do like, quote unquote UX, like the user experience stuff, or is it more just you approaching him with like, here's how I think it might want to go, or, or is it kind of like a democracy where all the employees get together and kind of go over it? Uh, no, he's deep on the UX. So that he'll write a, a brief for any big story where he'll say, let's define the problem. First and foremost, what are we trying to do here? Who's having the problem? What do we know about it? Then he'll say, here's how I've seen the solutions, the problem solved, but in various platforms. So as a as an example right now we're looking at doing workspaces so having multiple teams on an account essentially and step one is going this is the problem here's here's how miro does it here's how asana does it here's how github does it or whatever those those platforms would be and then he'll go and he say and now here are my solu- my assumed solutions this is how i think it could work but now i'm going to go do a bunch of research to really understand is this the right thing and so he's really caching up all of that sort of understanding and information and context to try and design the best solution so that when it does actually land uh, in a in a figma design file there's a lot of thinking behind that and you know we'll sometimes drive that based on what we're seeing in product usage and my experience and ned's experiences as as founders having been in this business for a while now but we'll start at the beginning but you know we did definitely rely on him to really go and put the put the hard yards in to to craft the best solution okay yeah it's really cool to see that like that person is in charge kind of at least like getting the initial thing set up and it's you know basically his job it's not like distributed around everyone yeah i guess like yeah it's sort of product is a you know the, the greater term product is really shared by it's such a shared responsibility especially for us which is it's the it's the design side of product it's the engineering side of product and it's the marketing and sales side of product that really have to interface to come together to be able to to build the best solution yeah so it's pretty cool that you built up a team where everyone can do their thing that makes this all come together and then it comes together and it actually works and becomes a good thing yeah that's that's the goal (laughs) (laughs) yeah so pj thanks a lot for coming on the running in production podcast it was really great having you on Awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nick. Yeah, no problem. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah. So if you're looking at ways to improve your customer research and scale how you do research at your company, I strongly suggest you come check us out. We're at greatquestion.co. And also we're always on the lookout for great engineers to work with. So if uh, anything I've talked about how we build product and think about engineering resonates with you, I'd love for you to reach out to me. Cool. So yeah, I'll make sure to drop a link to that one in the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.